You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Mapleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you to know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, we come again this week to consider the matter of church governance, uh, specifically the role of deacons in the local church. Uh, Last week, we focused on what deacons do. Uh, This week, however, uh, we are focusing on who is qualified to be a deacon or what deacons must be. Uh, Before we get into the qualifications, however, I thought it might be helpful to review some of the things we looked at last week, especially because last Sunday after church, I went to my wife and I said, so honey, uh, what did you think? How did things go? Did you learn anything? And she goes, well, I I thought it was great, but I still don't really understand what deacons do. And then she said something like, but I'm I'm sure you'll come back to it. And I said, well, no, that was kind of the only sermon that was supposed to be on what deacons do. Uh, But it kind of made me laugh. Uh, because I, I, I kind of knew what she was saying, and I knew that some of you would be feeling the same way, uh, because though we talked about the nature of the deacon ministry and how that ministry is a blessing to the church as people serve as servant administrators, which is really what deacons are in a sense, uh, at the same time, we, we didn't spell out specifically what deacons should be doing today. And let me just tell you why I didn't do that. Two reasons. Uh, Number one, because the Bible doesn't actually tell us a lot about what deacons did in the New Testament or in the early church. Secondly, nor does it tell us what they should be doing today. Now, the passage most people look to for that information, and we covered it last week, is Acts chapter 6. But again, that is merely an example or a description of what happened in the past. It is not a prescription of how things ought to be done today, which is why we don't even call the seven men who are appointed to help the apostles out with widows deacons, but we sometimes use a different term to refer to them, the term proto-deacons, because like a prototype, they serve as a model. A prototype is a model of something else. In the early church, those seven men become a model or a a prototype of what deacons would do later on. Uh, Nonetheless, Acts 6 still is a very helpful passage because in seeing how the apostles appointed men to care for the widows, we are given four insights into what deacons do. And I listed these to you last week, but let me just give those to you again. Uh, What are the things that deacons do? First, they meet tangible, practical needs. In the case of the early church, the need was very clear. It was for widows to be given food, Uh, but that might not always be the case, and the needs of the hour can vary. Uh, Second, they assist the elders as they serve under the authority and oversight of the elders. And in this sense, then, they become an extension of the elders as they are commissioned by the elders for specific tasks. Uh, Third, they prevent the elders from getting distracted from the ministry of the word and prayer. You might remember that statement where the apostles said, hey, we're not going to stop serving, you know, we're not going to stop to serve tables because we're going to devote ourselves literally to the serving of the word. 
So the apostles were still focused on serving, but they understood that the greatest way that the church is fed and equipped and helped is through the ministry of the word. And then fourth and finally, deacons also do this. They protect the unity of the church, especially when practical needs create conflict. And this certainly was the case with the dispute between the Greek and the Hebrew widows, right? A, a need arose. Uh, are you going to take care of everyone? Somebody's being overlooked. Well, that obviously led to some complaints and could have led to a great deal of conflict, but hence the deacons step in and save the day and they help serve the church. And uh, as you think about these four purposes for deacons, uh, let me give you some pictures to go along with those of what deacons are then. First, we could think of deacons as shock absorbers. All right, we're familiar with that picture. Every vehicle has shock absorbers. You hope you have good shock absorbers because if you don't, uh, you know what happens to the vehicle. Uh, it is thrown off its course. The people inside the vehicle are tossed about. Uh, again, that happens within the church. When different needs come up, when different conflicts arise, it can very much create a jostling effect within the church. Deacons protect from that. Uh, sometimes they are also referred to as offensive linemen, and we really appreciate this picture at this time of the year. Maybe some of you are taking in some football. Maybe yesterday you were able to watch some football, couldn't watch the evening game. If you didn't have Peacock, uh, I had an issue with that, but... Uh, but we can appreciate the picture of offensive linemen because when's the last time the game was over and it was the offensive lineman who was getting interviewed? It doesn't happen, right? It just doesn't happen. And yet, they are the backbone of the team. Uh, the running back usually doesn't go far unless those offensive linemen are opening up holes. The quarterback usually doesn't have a good day unless he has time to throw the ball, which only the offensive linemen can do. So the offensive linemen, there's little glory, but they are the ones doing the work in the trenches. They are doing grunt work, and that's true with deacons. They do grunt work, not stage work. One more picture I want to give you. Uh, some have also called them a special ops force, okay? Now, you don't, you don't always need a special ops force. That's obviously why they call them a special ops force. Well, uh, that's true with deacons. Uh, you can have a church without deacons, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a very healthy church. You can't have a church without elders. You need people serving that role of teaching the word and overseeing. But in order for you to have a healthy church, you definitely need deacons tackling specific tasks, and they come in uh, when the circumstances call for it. So hopefully those pictures help you out a little bit. In case you're still having trouble, though, uh, just remember what deacons do. Uh, deacons aren't elders, therefore they are not primarily responsible for overseeing, teaching, preaching, praying, or refuting error. Uh, now, the Bible doesn't say uh, they can't do some of these things, but the fact is that their sphere of responsibilities is different than those things. Uh, they exist then to facilitate ministry so that the church can excel in the work of making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. And that's key. Okay, We've gone over this time and again, but remember that this is a great paradigm for thinking about the church, that the elders oversee ministry, the deacons facilitate ministry, and the members do ministry. Okay, and hopefully that statement, along with my hand motions, helps get the point across, all right? 
Uh, so elders oversee ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the members of the church do ministry. And if you're following me here, um, here's what I hope you understand, how the deacon ministry then is an extremely flexible ministry. In other words, there is no one-size-fits-all approach for the deacon ministry. Every church will have different needs, therefore every church will have different uses for deacons. And yet, and yet, there are a number of common deacon ministries that it seems that you can find in mostly any church, and for good reason. What are they? Let me list some specific examples for you. Things like the deacon of member care. Uh, this person usually calls on the members to see how they're doing, to see uh, perhaps if the older uh, saints are able to get to their doctor appointments, if there's any rides that would be helpful to get them there, and so on. Uh, deacon of ordinances. This person ensures the church is ready for baptisms and communion. Uh, deacon of weddings and funerals to coordinate such occasions, deacon of grounds, which focuses on everything outside the building, deacon of building, which focuses on things inside the building, deacon of children's ministry, which obviously assists to help parents uh, be equipped with the word of God and the whole church, deacon of benevolence, to make sure when people fall on hard times that they receive financial help, a deacon of parking lot, to make sure people don't get road rage before or after church, uh, deacon of ushering to help people find their seats. Deacon of finance for financial accountability and the implementation of the elder's vision. More could be given, but again, these are just some common examples. Uh, all common deacon ministries that I've listed here. And as you think about these things, I, uh, I think that Matt Smethurst's statement comes in really handy here. He points out how there is an inseparable link between the labor of a deacon and the flourishing of the word. Public ministry is impossible without private service. Let me say that again. Public ministry is impossible without private service. And uh, as you think about the deacon ministry, you do have to love that, I mean, it, it reflects the heart of God, how we have one specific office that seems to reveal the very caring and servant-minded uh, nature of God. I mean, he is one who cares for our spiritual well-being, but he also cares for our physical well-being too. Well, I think that's enough on what deacons do. Hopefully that's helpful. We're probably not going to go through this again. Honey, you got, you got all, okay, all right. Uh, now let's get to who is qualified to serve as a deacon. And as we do that, Please turn your Bibles over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that is where we will spend the remainder of our time together. And for good reason, I, I mentioned to you, really, the Bible doesn't have much that it says about deacons. You have essentially four passages, two explicit passages, Philippians 1, 1 Timothy 3, one implicit passage, Acts chapter 6, and then one debatable text in Romans chapter 16. As you turn over to 1 Timothy, uh, let me just provide some background to this book. Uh, we know that 1 Timothy focuses on the Ephesian church. Uh, we know that because in verse 3, Ephesus is mentioned and how Timothy was charged by Paul to remain there. Uh, the fact is, five to seven years had passed since Paul said goodbye to this church. Tragically, however, from around A.D. 57 to A.D. 64, the church had fallen on hard times. 
as the elders failed to protect the church from false teachers. And this was particularly sad because God had always wanted the local church to be, quote, a pillar and buttress of the truth, a statement we get from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And yet, heretical teachings had advanced in the church so that every aspect of life in the church was affected negatively. One scholar explains the problem like this. He says, quote, new teachings had caused fighting and arguing among the people, lack of prayer, improper behavior on the part of many toward one another, neglect of its destitute widows, and problems within the church's leadership. In fact, things had gotten so bad that Paul had to excommunicate two individuals who were kind of the ringleaders of the false teacher uh, teaching, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Those men are mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. So picture this. Just understand that you had a church that was being torn apart by false teaching. And so here's what Paul is up to. He is seeking to put the pieces of this broken church, this broken Ephesian church, back together. But to do this, how does he go about it? Well, at least one of the primary ways, not the only way, but one of the primary ways that he does this is clearly by making sure that unfit leaders are removed from their posts and replaced by those who are truly qualified. And we just really can't overlook the importance of having qualified leaders. Uh, there are a great number of ways that the church can get distracted, uh, how it can become destroyed. Uh, on some occasions, you actually have healthy leaders in a church that's unwilling to support and care for those leaders. I was actually just reminded of that this morning as I was thinking about Moses, right? And Moses has to point out to the people, you're complaining not against me, but against God. And he could say that because God had appointed him and Aaron to care for the people. So you can have those situations where a congregation fails to follow the qualified leadership that's in place. But I would say, by and large, the greater threat to the church really is in having leaders who are, are unqualified. And that is the surest and fastest way for any church to go off the rails. It is when their leadership goes off the rails, either due to their character or due to their teaching. So... That is a good lesson for us to consider, even as we think about what Paul is up to here. And that's why you'll notice how there are two sets of qualifications in this letter. One for those serving in the office of elder or overseer or pastor. Remember how there are three different words referring to the one and same office. And then another qualification list for deacons. And in Paul's day, it was prime time to restore the integrity of those positions. All right, one more thing I want to just point out to you before we move on. I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. What does Paul say there? He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control and so on. I guess what I want to point out to you is uh, that Paul says here that I desire in every place that these things should be done. Uh, in, in other words, Paul is saying, this is what I want to be done everywhere. This isn't just what Paul wants to be done in Ephesus. He wants this to be done 
everywhere. And this especially becomes clear when you get to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, because what does Paul say? I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that does reinforce the fact that for any church to become healthy, we really do need to heed the instructions given about what offices there are and who is supposed to serve within those offices. With that, now, if you would, look at verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8, and we're going to read together verse 8 through 13. And this is where Paul reveals what deacons must be, who is qualified to serve as a deacon. Beginning in verse 8, follow along with me. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what must a deacon be? That is the key question for our outline, and everything that follows is an answer to that question. The first thing I want us to notice is that a deacon must be dignified. He must be dignified. What does this mean? Essentially, the idea of dignity has to do with honor, respect, and esteem. One who is dignified is honorable and respectable, which is what you'll notice in all four instances that this word is used in the New Testament. You might recall the statement Paul makes in Philippians 4, verse 8. There he commends believers to meditate on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Dignity is mentioned in there, the same Greek word. In Titus 2, 2, Paul commands older men to be dignified also. Uh, this being the idea that Paul wants uh, older men to live in such a way that their life garners the respect of others. And the same is true for those that serve as deacon. Or to say it another way, whoever serves as a deacon needs to have an outward life that reflects the inner qualities of a changed and transformed heart. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, you will notice how dignified is repeated. It is said in verse 8, but then it's mentioned again in verse 11 when we read, likewise women, or depending on your translation, likewise wives. We will come back to that point next week, but for now, just understand how this is an overarching statement, dignified, respectable. But what does it mean to be respectable? What does it mean to be honorable? What does that exactly look like? I think that gets fleshed out in the remaining qualities or characteristics that we see here. So first, the deacon must be dignified. Secondly, he must also not be double-tongued. And now we see here Paul highlighting certain things that a deacon must not be. There are things that a person must be, but there are also things that he must not be. Here, he must not be double-tongued. This is an idiom. 
a figure of speech which refers to a person who says one thing to one person and a different thing to another person. Uh, No doubt you have met people like this. They tend to be the people that focus on pleasing absolutely everybody. They are oftentimes governed by a tremendous fear of man. And so you can't really trust what they have to say. You leave a conversation expecting one thing, and then later on, you get something else. And they are the type who might compliment you to your face, but then they criticize you behind your back. Or you could think of them in this way. They are those who set up a meeting, and they say, hey, this is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to cover. And then they talk to a few other folks, and then before you know it, they have thoroughly changed the agenda right before the meeting so that at least half of the people are caught off guard. But uh, this cannot be the case with deacons. They can't act like this because it completely violates people's trust. And that is a big deal because as you think about the deacon ministry, again, what is the focus of their ministry? It is specifically focused on the practical, tangible needs of people. And uh, let me just illustrate how this connects to something I was part of in the past. So uh, before I was a pastor, many years ago, Uh, I was an undergrad uh, getting a finance degree from UND. First thing I did uh, nearing graduation was I was uh, a teller, or to, you know, put it in the more fancy lingo, I was a customer service representative, right? Uh, But being in the bank as a teller, we were always told that we as the tellers were the most important people because we were the experience for those who brought us their business. If we were perceived as being unprofessional, the bank was considered to be unprofessional. If we were unkind, the bank was considered to be unkind. Customers didn't interact with the loan officers, so uh, they didn't need to be always on their best behavior or on top of their game, but everybody interacted with us as the tellers, and so we always needed to put our best foot forward. Well, in a sense, I think the, the same could be true of the deacon's role in the church. It is so vital, it is so critical, it is so important because it tends to be the ministry that people experience the most. It is where people feel the ministry of the church in a very tangible, practical way. And if people feel deceived and misled by the deacons, what happens? Then no doubt People will tend to view the whole church through the same light. And uh, what a terrible predicament this creates, especially when you consider how deacons are, usually those who are dealing with suffering and struggling people who are already inclined towards complaint. And we saw that uh, in Acts 6, right, with the widows. Needs arise, all of a sudden you have conflict, you have disagreement, you have complaining, And so here's what you need from deacons then. You really need them, and here's another picture for you. You need them to be like those that serve as part of a bomb squad. They must be careful, delicate, and able to disarm potentially explosive situations, not make them worse. And deacons can make matters much, much, much worse. How? Um, Well, consider what could happen if a deacon doesn't guard personal information or their private thoughts about people. Yeah, you know, uh, Pastor Cody and the elders, they, they can sometimes be like that. Uh, you know, most people won't tell you this, but I will. We all kind of struggle with them. Or um, how about this? What happens if a deacon takes a private prayer re- request 
and then passes it on to others. Oh yeah, make sure you pray for Tom. He's really struggling with purity right now. Or, oh yeah, the Johnsons, man, are they, uh, you know, they're, they're in some financial hard times right now, so keep them in your thoughts. Uh, obviously, you can see this is a, a terrible predicament that is created, and, uh, and uh, they can make matters much worse. So that is not the kind of person you want as a deacon. No, you want someone who guards against gossip, against slander, and against flattery. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the differences, let me give them to you. Flattery is, of course, when you say to someone's face what you wouldn't say behind their back. Gossip is saying behind someone's back what you wouldn't say to their face. And slander is usually what happens when false, unseen motives are ascribed to certain external behaviors. Oh, the reason Joan did that is because is she's just jealous. Is that true? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But unless Joan has told you that, you don't know. It's speculative, and you could very much be misrepresenting Joan's character. And, uh, and so, again, a deacon certainly is a person who is careful with their speech. And they are a person who understands what the Bible says about the power of the tongue. They understand Proverbs 18, 21, when it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. They understand Proverbs 12, 18, when it says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And they understand what James says and how the tongue is a, a small instrument, and yet it has the ability, like a rudder, to turn a ship or like a spark to set an entire forest ablaze. Therefore, no person serving in the office of deacon can be double-tongued. So that's characteristic number two. Thirdly, a deacon must not be addicted to much wine. It must not be addicted to much wine. The Greek says, me peroinon. This translates roughly to not given to much wine or not addicted to wine. Uh, peroinos is a compound word, para meaning near, beside, and oinos meaning wine. And different translations render this slightly differently. Some say not given to drunkenness. Another says not a heavy drinker. Still another says not indulging in much wine. To be clear... Paul is not speaking against the use of alcohol altogether, but against excessive drinking, drunkenness. So a deacon might imbibe, but they are always under control. And actually, I would say the idea is even bigger than drinking. It has to do with moderation, self-discipline, and clear-headedness, temperance, self-control, and mastery over personal decisions. And we're talking about someone who indeed has control over their cravings. In fact, such control, at least when you consider the context, that if they are sent to heal the sick, which in the early church might involve the use of wine for medicinal purposes, they won't be tempted to use it for sinful, selfish purposes, nor do they even want to because they would rather be filled with the Spirit than being filled with wine. They don't want their judgment clouded when serving others because they want to be sober-minded in all things. And, uh, and let me be clear about this. It's easy to widen out the application here, isn't it? Again, the focus, I don't think, is merely on drinking. I think it applies to everything. Everyone has their vices. Everyone has those things that they might feel they need in order to be in a good frame of mind or emotion. And this is why you can find an addiction for just about everything. Addiction to drugs, 
addiction to screens, addiction to entertainment, addiction to sports, you name it. But the person who becomes a deacon is free of such addictions. You cannot accuse them of an addiction or dependency on any particular thing because they have put such things to death by finding their joy exclusively in Jesus rather than what the world has to offer. And uh, this is critical. The fact is deacons use their freedom not as a license to let the flesh run wild, but they use their freedom to serve those around them as they willingly, even at times, choose not to do certain things because they're mindful of those who surround them and the fact that they may have a weaker conscience. People like Paul who essentially say, hey, you struggle with me eating meat because you think meat that I'm eating is sacrificed to idols. Okay, I'm just not going to eat the meat. Paul knew that the meat was clean and that there was no such thing as an idol. Everything he ate, he considered to be the gift of God. But hey, when he was around people who didn't believe in the same things, he said, ah, I'm going to use my freedom to serve those around me. And that's a great test, isn't it? The question isn't merely do we have freedom, but are we willing to use that to serve those around us? A deacon will. So a deacon must not be addicted to much wine. Fourth, they must not be greedy either for dishonest gain. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Again, it's a negative quality. They must not be this. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain. And this is, uh, this is the same as the elders. And it's very obvious why such a thing would be repeated. Few things are more dangerous than a love for money. Nor are many things as pervasive as the love for money. We read 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Oh, how people love money. They love it so much, they will love it over Jesus. Jesus pointed this out when he says, for it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than for him to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we just talked about having certain appetites, certain desires, right? And what often goes with those appetites, those cravings, usually... It's a craving for the stuff that goes into one's wallet to buy the stuff they feel they need. And you have to watch out for people who crave money because the fact is they will do just about anything to get what they want. They will cut corners, they will lie, they will cheat, they will steal, they will even defraud the church. That's right. And don't think this doesn't happen, it does. Unfortunately, it happens more often than we would like to think. In fact, Converge, the ministry that we are part of, experienced this firsthand not long ago, uh, several years ago. I think it was four and a half, five years ago. It was just when we were starting with Converge. Uh, the national office found out how one of their bookkeepers embezzled as much as $12 million. The fraudster, believe it or not, it was a grandma, a grandma, who was taking her family on some pretty nice vacations. And so I can only imagine she was posting some of the pictures on Facebook and people were looking at these pictures going, oh, isn't that a caring grandma? Isn't that so great that she takes her family on these trips uh, not knowing that she was using their money to do it? 
oh, look at the sweet little treasure lady. And it was quite the situation that happened because what she was doing is that she was transferring the money of missionaries, which was intended for taxes, into her own account. And when it was discovered, talk about a headache, not only did churches end up losing assets, but certain missionaries, missionaries of all people, found themselves in trouble with the government for tax evasion, though they didn't have anything to do with it at all. So this is a reason why you care about people not being greedy for dishonest gain because when they use the church for their own selfish, sordid purposes, it makes everybody look bad. It puts the church at risk. It puts the people under their care at risk. And it makes everybody in the church look bad and feel extremely violated. So fourth, they must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Fifth, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now we get to more positive attributes. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So a deacon, in other words, is a mature Christian. Now you might think, given what we have already said that deacons do, they probably don't need to know that much about their Bibles. Perhaps they don't need to be that grounded in doctrine or what have you. After all, deaconing is handwork, not headwork. But no, we still need deacons to be grounded in the truth of God's word. Well, Paul uses the word mystery. That's a little bit of a misnomer because we know what he's talking about. He's referring to divine truth that was once hidden but now revealed. The faith clearly has to do with the gospel itself, but I think also includes more than that. I think it can apply to the rule of faith that we have in Scripture. In a sense, this whole book is the faith, the once for all truth delivered to God's people. A deacon needs to be strong in the rule of faith. And deacons need to have confidence in that rule, the inerrancy, the authority, and have an understanding of the teaching of the scriptures. Now, I know this will seem obvious, but one cannot hold what one does not know, right? One cannot hold that which one does not know. So deacons need to first know the faith. They need to know about God, about humanity, about Jesus Christ, about salvation. This does not mean that deacons will necessarily be the biggest readers or the most learned theologians in the church, but it does mean they need to have a sincere and earnest hunger and thirst for God's word. And then once they know the faith, they hold the faith. This means they cling to the truth. So they won't be embarrassed by biblical truths that offend the outside world. They won't mind when worldviews are exposed on a Sunday morning. They won't shrink back when cultural trends are dissected, but they will embrace the implanted word with meekness and humility. And then lastly, not only do they know the truth, not only do they hold the truth, but they also, they live the faith. So it's not merely that they know it, but they follow it, they apply it. And in fact, in some sense, they apply it hopefully so consistently, you don't even need to know what they actually believe because it's apparent in the way that they love others and in the way that they prioritize their schedules and the way that they work for their employers and interact with strangers and approach conflict and all these things because they have built their house, their lives, not on the sand, but on the solid rock of God's word.
So fifth, they need to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Sixth, they need to be tested and proven. They need to be tested and proven. So a deacon is not someone who just shows up one Sunday and is installed into a place of serving the next. And as odd as that might sound, that actually happens from time to time. Uh, There are many ministries that have no problems uh, taking somebody who's kind of unknown and putting them into a position of influence. I saw this especially in college with Campus Crusade for Christ, not to be too hard on crew, but it was very common to see someone come to faith in Christ, and the next thing you know, they're being paraded out before everybody else and being asked to, you know, be be the MC on a Tuesday night or being asked to lead a Bible study and, and they haven't even been walking with Jesus that long. Well, the same happens also in the church. And this is, of course, problematic because it goes against clearly what Paul is instructing here in 1 Timothy. And in fact, if you're new here, just hear me out on this. Like, we want you to serve. We really do. But more than that, uh, we actually want to know who you are and we want you to know what you're getting into. And so we're going to be a little bit on the slower end of things to plug people into positions, especially visible and influential positions within the church. Uh, We want to serve you before we expect or even ask you to serve our church. Again, we want to have confidence in you, but we want you also to have confidence in us and who we are. And, uh, And the fact is this, if somebody loves people, Uh, without a position, then you can be sure that they can be trusted with a position. And that's the kind of people you want serving. People who do it because they long to serve people. You do not need an official position to serve, do you? In fact, as we were talking about what the nature of the deacon ministry is, the meaning of deacon, diakonos, it means one who serves. And in a certain sense, we're all called to, to diakonos, right? We are all called to serve. Jesus himself, the Lord of glory, the one who had authority over all, he served. The Bible tells us that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The diakonos word the, uh, is used in that particular setting. So everybody is called to serve, and those that serve in the position of deacon are those that are already naturally serving other people. They are servants, and they don't do it for recognition, but because they love the Lord and they love the Lord's people. And so a person must be tested and proven. And I suppose that one reason why this gets sidelined is perhaps because Paul doesn't actually specify the length or the nature of the testing, does he? It'd be kind of helpful sometimes Some of these matters were spelled out. Well, make sure they hang out for, I don't know, six months, and then you can install them as a deacon. No, we're not given any sort of a timeline. We don't know if it's, you know, four months, eight months, uh, a year, what have you. But we know that whoever serves as a deacon needs to be tested. And and so we're going to be a little bit slower, like I said, to install those uh, people into deacons that haven't been with us long. All right, and and maybe just to emphasize as a point of application, but I mentioned this, as a church, we end up selecting deacons together. 
right? Now, again, we're not told specifically in the Bible how that is to take place or how it is to look, but when you look at Acts chapter 6, it's clear that the congregation was involved in the selecting of the individuals. And so uh, just understand that in the next several months as we go about this process of recognizing deacons, we would actually love to hear from you as the congregation. It, it would be an honor for the elders to hear from you. If, if maybe there's a ministry that is not functioning in our church right now, and you go, you know what? I've noticed there's some grumbling on a Sunday morning in this particular area of the church. I think it might be helpful to have a deacon serving over here to help out with that and bring unity to the church. Hey, that would be wonderful, right? As you see needs as the congregation, again, you're doing the work of ministry. You at the ground level feel things and know things and understand things that the elders might not. And so to be a healthy church, we all need to be participating in ministry together. And uh, so come talk to us. Uh, maybe we have somebody that we are considering as a deacon. And maybe there are experiences you've had with this person or concerns that you have. Okay, come talk to us. Visit with us. We would love to, we would love to know these things. All right, so sixth, a person must be tested and proven. Uh, and now seventh, also, they need to have a faithful family life. Every deacon must have a faithful family life. Uh, Paul's final requirement is that a deacon's godliness obviously must extend to his closest relationships. Uh, there is no such thing as a good deacon who is a lousy husband or dad. Being a good family man is not a bonus in considering someone for the diaconate. It is a prerequisite. If the deacon has children, the fact is that he must raise them in an atmosphere of gentle firmness and joyful love. It's not required that a deacon has children that are believers, but they are submissive. They trust him. They love him. They support him, right? They respect him. All of these things need to be the case. He needs to be diligent in the home. And so we ask for any person that wants to be a deacon, how do they do at loving their spouses? Do they just railroad their spouses and run them over to get the things that they want? Or are they sensitive? Are they gentle? In the home, is there a, a team effort going on? How are they doing at caring for their children? Do they take time with great patience in explaining things to their children and helping them understand the Word of God? Not only, hey, do this, but also having those moments of going, let me explain why we do this. Let me explain why God wants us to do this. Do they raise their children to obey them, not out of a fear of them, but ultimately out of a fear of God? These are all very important questions to ask about uh, the family life. So these are the qualifications for deacons. And if you're looking at verse 11, maybe you're even wondering why I didn't cover that. Here's why. It's because next week we're going to come back to that verse and uh, we know this, that Paul there says, likewise, the translation I read this morning says, their wives, but we need to understand that that pronoun, there, isn't even there. It's inserted. And that word that's translated as wives is in most places actually translated as women. So next week, we're going to come back to this matter of gender and its application to the deacon ministry. Can women be de de deacons? Should they be deacons? 
Uh, whatever your position is, you need to know this, that clearly there were people that were doing deacon things. There was women within the church that had an elevated role of uh, recognition. And so at a bare minimum, Paul comes and he says, hey, women, you women who are known for your service, this is how you must be. And when you look at the qualifications listed there, one thing that stands out is it, it very much is reflective of the things that we went over this morning. Uh, just look there if you would. Verse 11, their wives, like mice, must be dignified. Did we hear that word? Yes, we did. Okay, they need to not be slanderers. Did we talk about the tongue this morning? Absolutely, we did. Uh, they need to be sober-minded. We, did we talk about that? Yes, we did. And they must be faithful in all things. So, again, these are the qualifications for those who serve within the church. And here's what we understand, that those who do serve in the church, who are qualified to do so, are a blessing to the church. They are a blessing to so many. But we also need to understand something else. Not only is the church blessed by those who serve as deacons, but there is a blessing that is specifically connected with the office itself. Because what does Paul close with here? Or what does he wrap things up with? Verse 13, he says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there clearly is something very edifying for the person who serves as a deacon. And they, as they serve, grow in their love for the church, their love for Jesus Christ, their confidence in their walk with him. And that seems to always be the case when we are tested these things, when we get involved in serving, we constantly ask the question, why do I do what I do? In fact, I would ask you that question this morning. Why do you do what you do? If, is it for the glory of Jesus Christ? Or is it for your own recognition, for your own honor, for your own benefit? Well, we know the heart that ought to mark all of our lives. And in the church, we, got to, we ought to constantly be amazed at the grace and the loving kindness that's been shown to us through Jesus Christ, which truly is immeasurable. I am excited for us to move ahead as we recognize deacons, because the fact is, there is a lot of ministry that goes on within our church outside of the elder team. And as I talked about the blessing of uh, what comes to those who serve as deacons. You know, there's, I, I, I would say, at least two reasons why I'm excited to recognize deacons. First, because I think there are those that already do deacon work. We have a lot of people doing deacon work within our church. And I think it's going to be very edifying for them to receive recognition for all that they do. But just as importantly, I think that everyone in our church really does need to recognize that ministry is done by the entire body of Christ. Our ministry would be a fraction, I guarantee you, it would be a fraction of what it is if it weren't for people stepping up, recognizing needs, and being willing to meet those needs through their labor of love and through their earnest sacrifices. And as we recognize those people, continue to pray that God would cultivate that same spirit that is within them to be in our entire church that we really would become known as a church that serves. Amen? Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you so much for listening. 
We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Mapleton or even in the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.